Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the hot seat alone this week with both my regular co-hosts sidetracked by other duties. Adrian Logue's preparing for the launch of the World Handicapping System here in Australia, which, as you'd imagine, is a pretty big task. While Derek Duncan is busy fulfilling his new role as Associate Editor for Architecture, with Golf Digest magazine in the US. He's also publishing his own Feed the Ball podcast, which featured Sandhills course super Kyle Heglin on the latest episode. I listened to that last night and am giving it an official recommendation. Now, given all that and knowing in advance that this was going to happen, I cleverly organised last week an interview that I'd wanted to do for some time. Turns out I outsmarted myself by recording last week before talk of a new world golf tour began raging around the golf world. However, that doesn't detract from what was a wide-ranging and fun discussion with today's guest, host of the unofficial partner podcast and author of the excellent Ryder Cup book, The Captain Myth, Richard Gillis. We'll be along shortly to chat all things golf marketing and media. And trust me, it's a lot more interesting than I've just made it sound there. Richard's a really interesting, thoughtful, intelligent and articulate bloke. Before that, though, I have to mention a couple of things. Firstly, our network sponsor, the Golf Society, an Australian-based online golf apparel and accessories company, which is making significant waves in that sector. They deal in only the very best brands and latest fashion, including Nike, Hugo Boss, Travis Matthew, Jay Lindeberg, among others. They also sell accessories and footwear, including the popular New Balance and G4 ranges. But most importantly, they offer Talking Golf listeners a $25 store credit on your first purchase. To make use of that, simply go to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf, just the one G in talk and golf, or look below in the show notes and use the direct link there. That's www.thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf and claim your $25 store credit today. Well, you don't have a network sponsor without a network, so don't forget to go and check out the range of top quality podcasts at TalkingGolf.com. As I mentioned, just the one G in Talking Golf. You'll find the aforementioned Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan there, as well as the popular State of the Game and Talking Golf History podcast. Recently, we added Dr. Kelly Price to the rotation with her unique academically based On the Tee with Dr. P, a show focused on women and golf, if you're inclined to have a bet on the game, there's the weekly risk and reward show with myself and John Evans. And I can tell you there are a couple of other new ventures in the offing as well. More news as it comes to hand. Now, I know this is dragging out, but there's one last thing I'd like to mention. It's another podcast that I do. It's not part of the Talking Golf Network, but it is one of my favourite things. It's the Thing About Golf Show, which I host for Golf Australia magazine. It's an in-depth interview show. It's proving quite popular among those who prefer less soundbite and more substance. Guests have already included Peter Lonard and Peter Senior, as well as Bumboogle June's owner, Richard Sattler. So if that sounds like your kind of thing, head to golfaustralia.com.au forward slash the thing about golf, and you can listen and subscribe and all that fun stuff there. It'll come as no surprise. There's a direct link in the show notes below. Okay, that's enough out of me. Let's get to today's guest. And his name will be not completely unfamiliar to State of the Game or I Seek Golf podcast listeners as he's made a couple of appearances on those shows over the years. Richard Gillis is a journalist and author whose special area of interest is the sports business world. He launched the excellent and highly recommended unofficial partner podcast last year, which for anyone with an interest in the business of sport is a must. Listen, there's a link in the show notes below, but it's easy enough to find, unofficialpartner.com. Now, golf doesn't get a lot of attention on the show, but there is always something on each episode which can be related back to the game and the business of the game. And as a pretty keen fan of the sport, 
Richard's got some really interesting thoughts on both the professional and recreational pursuits from T20 cricket and how golf might learn from it to the changing media landscape and how that is impacting the sport. There isn't much that Gillis hasn't thought about. So without any more blabbing from me, I hope you enjoy a chat with the always entertaining Richard Gillis. Well, Richard Gillis from The Unofficial Partner, I never know where to start with you. You've got so much knowledge, so broad, and so much about everything else. First things first, I guess, thank you for taking some time. Greatly appreciated. Not at all, mate. I, I am a, a fan and, uh, of all your work. It's a growing portfolio you've got, isn't it? And that's, what, that's what the uh, marketing people would, would say. <laughs> it is marketing and marketing speak. We'll probably come to some of that. Richard, yes, it's going okay. Seems to have found a bit of a market, and we'll talk about the media and the changing media landscape a bit later, which, of course, you're a part of as well. But I wanted to start, I guess, in golf, we have our own media. Uh, and it strikes me that and I chatted to John Huggan about this in a podcast I did with him recently. If you're an administrator in golf, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. You could spend your whole life talking to journos and never speak to anybody outside the golf media. There's enough of us that you don't have to. How does the outside world view golf, Richard? You deal with and interview people in all sports and sports marketing – what do they think about golf? Where does golf sit in the, the landscape broadly? I think that, uh, just on that first point about, you know, the, the silo of golf, um, and every sport is like that, but I would also say that there is a, a completely uh, – there is another market for, um, you know, the sort of administrators, which is the business press, and they are very sensitive to that. And so the space that I'm in is I'm sort of I play both sides of the both sides of the street to an extent. And so, you know, I, I do occasionally write about golf, although that's much less these days. But then um, there is a, a sort of vertical market which deals with the sport as a business. And so every sports rights holder. So whether it's the PGA Tour or the European Tour, um, or the NFL or the Premier League, they have the main, their main sort of job is to talk to the fans of the sport. And it's all about players and, you know, the, the, the controversy of the day. And they're, they're sort of firefighting sometimes on that. Then there is the other market, which they're very sensitive to, which is the, which is the corporate market. And that's made up of people who are in that space where they're spending, um, or they're in charge of media platforms or, or broadcasters, or they work for sponsors. And there's a whole range of different sort of agencies and things. So there's people buying and selling all day, every day in that marketplace. And that's something that they're very sort of, um, that, that's, a, that's a significant part of their job. So golf is no different from that. And, and, the, and the sort of main golf politicians, the people who are running the tours and the people who are sort of high up in those, organizations are fairly familiar with the sort of you know that that bit of their job and they they are linked but they are actually also see i always find it quite interesting when stories that that run on the business side never sort of get commented on by fans and then when they do it's suddenly a massive deal and then there's people that work on the business side think well we've been talking about that for three or four years you know it's uh, there's been a there's been a moment this this sort of last couple of weeks um, in the UK and, and around football and betting and the betting brands. Now, this is a story that's been running for, you know, 15 years. <laughs> um, 
and it's just blown up. It's just become this massive deal because the BBC ran a piece and then the uh, Daily Mail ran a piece. And then suddenly you're in this world where they're talking about banning sport, you know, shirt sponsorship of uh, betting brands in the Premier League and, and across the Football League, which is going to be a massive, significant input impact on, on the, the, the sort of football economy. But it's, that's not a news story. You know, that's something that's been running for ages. So you quite often find that, that sports operate in their own silos. And I think golf is exactly the same. I don't, you know, so to get back to your question, so I diverted off it a bit. But that, you know, I think that, that golf is by turns seen as a, um, a fairly safe bet from a, from a perspective. It's, it's, it's where you go where you don't want particular controversy. And a lot of the time people sort of say, oh, well, I don't particularly want to get into the distance debate. I don't particularly want to get into, you know, Patrick Reed. I don't care. I, golf is somewhere I go to relax. And a lot of people think of sport in that way. And that's where, you know, they don't want it. It's not war. It's not, it's a fairly low stakes world. And we have our controversies, but actually they don't really matter much. Um, really, aren't they? <laughs> it's an entertainment, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so for good, for good and bad. If people, so, so I get the sense of what you're saying is the golf scene is safe in that business world. So there's people, as you say, who's who horse trade in what sports they want to put money into to be associated with for sponsors and companies who are looking to, uh, you know, grow eyeballs and become better known. So golf is seen as safe. Is that a good thing? For golf, does the broader sports market need a sport like golf to be safe and a haven for those sorts of things? We're often critical of the PGA Tour's vanilla slash beige um, sort of outlook and, and what they present to the world, but perhaps it's deliberate and effective? I think it's certainly been effective. It's been working for, you know, a long time. We're talking a couple of decades, a few decades um, now there are not, that's not to say there aren't concerns, you know, and that the aging, you know, the obvious one would be the sort of the age of the people who are watching. Um, and that's true of a lot of major sports is getting older and older. And then you start to have marketing people who they, they you know, when you're sitting in and you're at a, at a big company and you're the marketing director or a CMO of a, of a big company, you don't care if it's golf or football or X factor or whatever it is. You, you're not, you're, you're, you're completely ambivalent about the nature of the content. And it's just, you're trying to then sort of work out, well, where is my audience? And does that, is that a good route through to the people who buy my product? And golf for a, a long time, obviously, as we all know, has been successful in telling selling the story that, you know, it's a sort of fairly upmarket, you know, you no know, surprise when you look around and you look at the brands that sponsor golf. It's Mercedes and IBM and lots of different sort of very uh, big, large companies who um, want to chase um, a certain type of audience. Now, golf's issue is is cultural relevance you know is it as culturally relevant today as it was five ten twenty thirty forty years ago and and you know you can very easily construct an argument to say no and that's a worry you know for those people that are running the running the sport 
I always say, though, you know, as a caveat to this conversation, is that most sports would love golf's problems. You know, <laughs> well, golf, you yeah, know. Yeah. that's true. We are. Right? It's like I, it's like having a big tax bill, isn't it? If you've got a big tax bill, it means you must have made <laughs> plenty. So it's a, yeah. it's a, it's yeah. better than having no tax bill at all because the alternative isn't great. Just to go on a sideline, you mentioned the aging demographic, and I always think this is an interesting one. So a couple of things I've gotten from you do a fabulous podcast at Unofficial Partner, which you started last year and has been for those of us interested in the sports business, my bent being golf, but I like to listen to see what we might be able to Thank learn from other sports because it doesn't get much of a run, Richard. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> we haven't had a lot of golf people on. But the ageing demographic is an interesting one. One of the things I've learned from your blog and your pod is that across the board, viewing is down. It would seem that younger people don't want to watch entire football matches. They certainly don't want to watch eight hours of golf over four days, but I think that's always been the case. What I wonder is... Should golf worry about that ageing demographic or embrace it? We see all of the grow the game, much as I hate the term, initiatives from most of the authorities in the game, be they PGA or the governing bodies, aimed at young people. We want millennials. We've got to sell to young people, sell to young people, sell to young people. Is that smart? Um, It depends on whether you think that uh, today's 20-year-old is going to grow into golf and whether they, as people get older, they take golf up and become interested in. So when they are 40, they will be like their parents and, or the, you know, and that's one strand and people, people will put that argument forward and say, well, let's not worry so much because people, you know, golf is something that you pick up as you go along and um, everything will be fine. So you've got a couple of sort of, threads there so that's that's an optimistic hope the other the 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 negative one is that you know far fewer people are say watching and seemingly interested in golf than they were and we've all seen the 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 sort of big statistics and that's been a story again not a new story by any means it's been going for you know that 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 there have been naysayers there for 20 years so it's not um it's certainly an issue but i think on the on the um, the the viewing side of it, I'm less concerned because actually we are all watching sport in different ways. Our behaviour has almost completely changed in the in the last sort of three to five years. And I know this anecdotally. You know it. You're consuming sport and in clips on Twitter on your mobile phone. You may not be sitting there and you know consuming it. Um, and paying a subscription for a golf channel or you might not be you know a generic sports channel but that doesn't mean that you're not following the game and you're not interested in and not engaging in it you're doing it differently and so are lots and lots of other people as well and golf works as a as a sort of um short form clip it's a different relationship and we're at the start of this rather than you know any you know we're not sort of um the, the 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 problem is is that those clips won't come up with the same checks that the the golf channel and nbc and you know sky have done traditionally so the sport is fine i don't see you know i, I i'm fairly sort of i don't get so worried about the sport itself and people playing the game um but i do think probably that the money from broadcasters is certainly under pressure although having said that you know you can see that there's been a couple of deals in the last sort of few months where 
you know, people are still spending enormous amounts of money on golf. So golf has always played a particular role for broadcasters, both as an advertising sort of, you know, as a, as a way of attracting, you know, upmarket advertisers, but also it fills enormous amounts of time. <laughs> and if you're a sort of specialist sports channel, you need stuff, yeah. you know, you need content. Three golf tournaments can do you a whole weekend. You can do 24 hours. <laughs> of, yeah. of programming with three golf tournaments and and be quite happy and you'll find a market for each of them. I just I'll finish up on this aging thing in a moment because there's one that's intrigued. I'm in the camp that says golf is wasting its time in many ways pursuing a millennial uh, target audience in terms of trying to get those people to play the game because well a they don't have any money or time. That's traditionally even mm. committed golfers take ten years off when they first have kids and are building businesses and going mm. on through careers. So to me, golf's got the advantage, if they did it right, get people in as kids, let them have their decade off, and re-grab them, as you say, at 40 when other sports are no longer feasible because knees and hips and shoulders say so. You can still play golf with a bung knee. Lots of old footballers do. And when you've got the disposable income, but more importantly, the time for golf to be a luxury... There's this big push to make golf. Let's find the 2020 of golf. I'll get your thoughts on what 2020's done for and two cricket mm. at some point. Big pushes in golf to find the 2020 of golf. I wonder whether it's necessary, whether golf's not better off to actually sell what it does have, which is this is a luxury which takes time. Take some time for yourself. Play golf. You've done the kids. You've done the sport on Saturday morning. You've done the 80-hour weeks building the career. You know, Do something for yeah. yourself. Is there anything in that? I think there's there's a lot in that. It 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 comes down to um, if you are Nike or if you are Sky or if you are the PGA Tour, then you might feel that there's the house is burning down, and you know you have to constantly innovate to try and make money out of golf. Now, if you're not in that camp, if you are someone who just turns up on a Saturday or you know and and plays things are okay. You know, there, there might be some, uh, you know, that you could argue that there's been a sort of a phony, but certainly in the UK, this is probably true in that, you know, in, in since the, you know, the eighties and the Ryder cup boom and Ballesteros and Faldo and the big fire, all of that created an enormous boom in golf courses being, being made. And a lot of them are now sort of, uh, white elephants and are being closed, but actually it was a fake boom driven by, real estate and the golf the game itself has trotted on you know fairly consistently and you've had a core of people again and exactly to your to your story of well you know people come to the game at various stages and times so if you're i don't worry about the game itself if you are in the business of golf and you are your job is to sell product and golf clubs you know we all know that you've only got to stand in you know stand in a sports shop and for half an hour and a new new range of clubs will come through the door. <laughs> That's right. You know, a new driver will be released. And the and they've tested it, there'll be another one. <laughs> exactly. So you're sort of, you know, and you're expecting massive discounts because you've been educated to suggest that, that you know, this, this driver that's promising you 300 yards is not as good as the, the next version. So, you know, and, that, and there's been some mistakes structural mistakes made in in the way in which golf is marketed because it's just but that's not to do with the demand side that's to do with the supply side there's an enormous number of people who are trying to make money and need to look as a, you know and you and the great thing about tiger woods is that he masked all of this 
because he made golf look fashionable and and like an athletic sport and it's he did a brilliant job you know he's and we've lived through that era and uh, a lot of people made a lot of money on the back of it a lot of people are hoping to make a money off, make a lot off Tiger 2.0 or 3.0, whichever version you think we're at now. But it's still the only one who moves the needle. We might come to that a little bit later because there was some interesting stuff on your pod about 12 months ago about Tiger and all of that. Um, so just to, so to go back, what what has the reality of T20 cricket been? I'm not a cricket follower, so I sort of watch from afar and only hear bits and pieces. Has T20 cricket, and I think it's now is it hundred ball cricket? Is going to be the next thing. Has that been overall a good thing for cricket or like golf? Are there a couple of different demographics here? Part of them being like my uncle, a test cricket fan who can't stand the notion of the pyjama game, as he still calls it, what, 30, 40 odd years after World Series cricket started. What's been the reality for cricket? I think it's it's been a really good thing, 2020. Um, and it's evolved into its own sort of game really with its own sort of codes and styles and people have become specialists and it's you know it's yeah so i'm i'm a i'm a big 2020 fan the hundred which is the um the ecb's new product which comes out this year again i don't know we'll wait and see i'm i remember getting in in about 2001 to being and I used to work, you know, on a I used to edit a magazine, and I got the ECB came around with the 2020 pitch and said, look, you know, this is well, this is the future of cricket, and I, you know, I couldn't have been more cynical. And it's what I was like, oh, you know, really, you know, I'm a Test cricket fan. I'm not, you know, 20 overs. And then about that summer, I remember taking my dad, who was who was it was his 80th birthday, and I and we went to Lords, and we lived it because we lived in London. And we went to Lords on a sort of th- Tuesday or Thursday night to watch Middlesex Surrey in the 2020, and uh, we didn't we couldn't get in, and it was the first lo- you know, lockout for since 1953 since sort of Compton and Edridge were playing. So um, it was like a and I had to chase a, a you know a ticket tout down St John's Wood Road to try and get into the bloody thing. So you know my my you know. <laughs> I've got form in terms of not being on the right side of, you know, <laughs> second guessing whether things are, are any good or not. I do think that, you know, 2020 has been good news. I think there's a, if I was to sort of, and, and I'm not sure about the hundred, I always say that uh, sports fans want faster horses. They don't, they don't see innovation. They don't want it. They're resistant to it. Then they experience it and then they like it. That's happened time and time again in, you know, in sports marketing history where people sort of think, oh, you know, uh, something new, people trying to make money, it's marketing bullshit. And then they turn up in their, their tens of thousands. So, I, you know, the, the fans are innately conservative and not a particularly good guide in terms of whether or not something's a good thing or not. That's not to say that every new innovation is a good thing because some of them are, are, are terrible. But I do think 2020 cricket is interesting um, because it's got its own culture and the IPL has driven a great deal of that. Now, the question for golf you know, quite often you sit at conferences and you listen to people talking and, and the assumption being there's a straight line from 2020 cricket into a short form of golf. Um, I'm, I'm less sure about that because uh, there's, there's two things. One is that the, the game itself is different. 2020 cricket, short 2020 cricket is different. I don't see a much difference in a short form golf game. Um, you're still, it's the same skill set and you're just playing fewer holes or doing it over a less period of time. So that's one 
factor which I'm a bit, you know, I still have, I haven't, I'm not convinced on. The other bit is more to do with money, and there's an, there is an argument which is that the IPL, which is the driver of 2020, really, and and the you know the big bash and the hundred over here, that's driven by money. It's not driven by structure of the game. So it's great that it works for a, you know for it's a, a format that works in two hours and you get people in and out and blah blah blah. But I go to Lords on a 2020 game and the audience isn't that much different than a than a test, test match audience really so that might be different around the counties it might be different i don't know from a big bash perspective you might turn up and it's a different group of people but actually the the ipl was all about um the indian economy and in the indian media um uh sector and that blew the whole thing up and became the story in which case i don't see golf you know, it, it was also exploiting unhappiness in the same way as Kerry Packer did, you know, all those times in World Series cricket. Uh, IPL 2020, cricketers felt pissed off because they weren't paid enough. You don't get that. that golfers are not pissed off. <laughs> uh, no. You know, there's no, there's no unhappiness there. And that's why they will, you know, kowtow to whatever the tours say, because they just know that, you know, it's just... They, they are golfers are you know they're up there with hedge fund managers as the sort of most overrated sort of skill in in the in the modern economy aren't they so it's like a you know it's it's there's no um nothing there to exploit you're not gonna you know until woods mickelson brooks uh, rory go down the final straight in a short form game with proper world ranking points and major status on the line it's not going to matter the 2020 matters um and it's evolved but it started with money i think so you know that's my two penneth on that i love a sentence that uh that upsets two powerful demographics and you've done that beautifully with professional golfers and hedge fund managers so congratulations richard (laughs) (laughs) you've done well is there something in the golf fan being different to most sports fan because the golf fan is far more likely to be a participant. The bulk of people that you're sitting in the stands with watching either 2020 or test cricket, cricket's probably the worst example. It might be the closest to golf in the number of people who participate at a recreational level. In golf, that figure's probably close to 90%. Of those watching on television, by far the majority would be participants in the game themselves. Is, am I right that that's different to other sports? And does that change the nature of the relationship between the professional game and the amateur game at all? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure it's true, actually. Uh, in terms of the that relationship, I, I, you know, I think that the viewing golfer is 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 higher than that potentially. I, I, I mean, I've got again, I'm not, I've got no great evidence to suggest, but I, that. Certain events, one of the one, Ryder Cup Masters majors, I think. But week to week, I always pick them up. The John Deere Classic. Sure. If you're watching the John Deere okay. Classic, Richard, I'm going to suggest to you that if you don't play golf and you're watching the John Deere Classic, you're a little bit odd. <laughs> There's something going on in your life that you need to, you know. <laughs> you might need to address. To something. address. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's always the John Deere Classic, is it? It, it is always, always the John Deere Classic, which is terrible because <laughs> of all the sponsors, they can actually contribute to the game through the machinery and the agronomy side of their business. So apologies to John Deere, but look, every time I mention your name, I'm sure it's some sort of KPI is met. 
I once did a conference with the guy, the head of sponsorship, John Deere. He's a very, very nice chap. You know, <laughs> you just get, you know, it's, it's like it is always. It's like a sort of metaphor for, you know, the 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 mid ranking PGA yeah, Tour. That's right, the dull, the dullness. Although the players love it because they get to play on the tractors. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the social <laughs> media around it is fantastic because they get there Tuesday and Wednesday of the week and they let them drive the big tractors and all the they've got it all on site. So the players love it. So we shouldn't pick on John Deere. They do make a great contribution. Anyway, leaving that aside, I think you know the broad yeah, yeah. point that I'm trying to make. Um, yes, I think that's uh, yeah. As I say, so if we if we take your your point at face value, I um, does it is it any different? Does it matter? Um, I think there's a sort of I don't know the answer. I guess is the, is my 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 response that. I mean, it's something like cycling, for example, which golf often gets compared to. Again, I imagine there is a significant proportion of people who sort of look at it as a, you know, it's almost like a how-to. Um, you know, there's a sort of learning moment, which in football there isn't really. Um, well, I suppose there, there is, but not, not you know, it, it, the proportions are different. So I don't know is the answer. But the, then I think that... Um, the participation question is in every sport a one of the one of the issues that that again people are sort of getting around to now is that what is the what is the link between watching something and going out and doing it and that that's basically the, the that link that that's a story that <clears throat> has held for a very long time and has driven a great deal of money you know that's why london got the olympics in 2012 that's why sydney got the olympics in 2000 is because there there is an assumption that you go you watch something and then you want to go out and play it and the evidence is a bit is sketchy in terms of whether you know an olympics or a, a sports event drives participation and actually what happens is that there is a core of people who play loads of sport and they just carry on playing loads of sport. And then some people just get, you know, drawn in and out depending on the nature of the event and they come and they go and they leave. So you've got these sort of this small core of people and then you've got an outer circle, which is much bigger, but then fluctuates and doesn't have much impact on participation. So um, you might be right in that golf has a sort of strong core of people who are watching day in, day out and uh and they get you know others get brought brought in for the majors and the Ryder cup but i don't think it's that that much different if i'm completely honest um there's a, there's an argument to say that you know televised sport the television era has just taught people to watch tele you know it's taught kids to watch television not actually play sport that's exactly rather right. than going and playing yeah well here's a rabbit hole for you does sport broadly do itself a disservice by competing to try to get kids involved rather than perhaps if sports worked together? And I know this is often brought up in golf when we talk about uh, bringing young people into the game, which I think is fantastic. School-age kids should be introduced to all sports, golf included, I think, and let them play them all and pick which one they might want to go on with because we know that most won't. But I wonder whether if sports worked together to attract kids at that age rather than try football, no, try golf, oh, no, over here, come and have tennis or netball I wonder whether we might get better results because the- yeah, I think there's a, there's a there's quite a bit of collaboration. You know, there's not you know between the governing bodies. I think one of the questions is is actually, 
you know, so if you're if it's if it's golf or tennis or football or athletics or whatever it is, they each you know the governing bodies themselves do you know it's easy to 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 knock them, but they do a load of work to try and get people in. Now the question is, is whether is there relevance today? And so you know, if you look at something like uh, take it out of golf for a minute and just say right. You look at running. We're in a running boom in the UK over here, and then that's not driven by the by, uh, you know, UK athletics. That's driven by park run. So every Saturday morning, you've got parks full of people running around doing a 5K, and that's a completely, you know, uh, that's a, almost a charitable sort of organisation. It's a non not not for profit, but it's driven by the innovation from outside of that. And there, you know, I was talking to David Bedford on the podcast recently, and who was a former, he used to run the London, you know, he was race manager for the London Marathon for for a long time, and was the world record, ten thousand meter world record holder. And he said, "There's no way that Park Run could have emerged from a governing body. It just wouldn't have ever happened because they don't think like that. They don't think in that in those those terms." Does the target so, you know, market attach a stigma to governing bodies as well, perhaps? If, if, I don't know. if I running think, in the UK yeah. had tried to launch Park Run, would runners have just turned their nose and gone, no? I, wonder, I think that's sometimes true in golf, to be honest with you. That's a whole separate yeah. idea, Well, I think there's a sort of, you know, do you want to be a member of a golf club? Do you want to be um, – and everything that goes with it. You know, so if you, if, you want to go and, if you want to play golf, do you have to, you know, sign your life sentence away on a golf course membership, which you're not going to fulfill, and it's going to be like going to the gym and you're going to be, you know, I've, I've done it. I'm sure other people, have, you know, listeners have done it where, you know, you sign up and it's a thousand quid a year and I play five times, you know, and it's golf has got much better at that. But still, there is that that issue. It's long and difficult and whatever. But actually, the innovation very rarely comes from within the game. Um, you know, that's true of anything. That's not true. That's not just in sport. Sport is is just a you know if you if you do see sport as a business and it is a business, then innovation and, and new things tend to come from outside. They don't tend to come from um, within because it's just really difficult to to do it because you, you spend all your day thinking about it um, and you just you're you're in a silo and it's really hard to break out. If you're doing all right, why would you innovate? Well, innovation's invariably false. Yeah. I mean, that's been the truth for golf clubs. The reason we've got more palatable membership options and uh, broader membership options it isn't because golf clubs thought it was a good idea it's because the membership started to drift away and now they have to innovate to try to I, I don't see really a problem with that to be honest with you. it's a problem obviously for clubs that are struggling and whatnot however broadly speaking that's how markets work demand drives supply in a healthy market not the other way around and that points directly to the, what you were talking about earlier with the real estate golf boom of the 80s and 90s where supply was trying to drive demand and that is just a road to nowhere in any market, it doesn't really matter what mm. the product is. Uh, I think we all know you're right, Richard. Sport is business. It's the entertainment business. That's true. But it's not for the customer, is it? It's easy for sports to disconnect from their customer because they start to think about it like business. People love golf. They don't watch golf because people win money and all that. They love golf because they love the game and they have an attachment to it. And it's the same with cricket and with football. Football's somewhat tribal, I guess. Uh, maybe different in that way, in some ways. Um, do we get it right with the customer? We always think about it as business because we're in the business. But when I knock off from the business and go on Saturday to play with my mates, because I love golf, it's not business. What's the importance of that connection? 
There's a, I think there's a, um, the, 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 one of the, one of the, you talk about from a club membership perspective. No, no, sorry. I'm so, probably more a tour perspective, I guess, in some ways. Maybe you know, I, think, I think the club does a pretty good job of servicing that in that sense because they tend to be sort of member-driven committees. So I'm sort of probably thinking more in the, the professional and not just in golf, I guess. I, I partly raised the question because your latest podcast with Alex Flynn, I think is the chap's name. I think you Yeah, Flynn. The, the, the architect of the Premier League, I think, as you described. So I know nothing about football or soccer, as we call it, here in Australia. But he said some really interesting things about football being run by people who don't understand football, that they run it like a train service where they just think that more matches equals more money, that scarcity is important, that matches need to be in events. I think all of those things can cross over to golf. If I think just of the first one, in a 52-week year, the PGA Tour will play 48 or 49 of those weeks. They will have an event and they have a secondary tour and there's a European tour and a secondary European tour and the LPGA and the LET. Yeah. So I wonder about some of those things and, and whether that ignores in some ways or tries to mine too deeply that the customers into golf not because it's on every week, they're into it because they love the game. I wonder whether there's I'm, – I'm putting it clumsily, but do you, do you kind of understand the point I'm trying to make? Yeah, I think there's a, so there's a few things there just to unpick. There's, there's a – first of all is that there are – uh, almost concentric circles of sort of what you might call avidity, you know. So you, there is the obsessive golfers in the middle who will watch everything, consume everything, buy everything. Um, and then you, you know, you, the further out from that centre you go, then the less um, sort of they are, you know, they're, they're sort of coming at it occasionally. And then, and then one of the big trends of the last sort of decade has been the sort of cultivation of the, you know, the big event. And one of the things that, that, that um, Alex Finn talked about on, on Unofficial Partner was the, was the focus of football to turn, uh, turn as many of the games, because, you know, there is a sea of matches over a season and not enough of them are big events or events that are, are sort of, uh, are big moments. So, you obviously need an element. There's a balance there between you need the sort of diet of, of regular content, but you also need something that, that people care about. And the problem with a lot of sports marketing and golf is very guilty of this is that they just more is, um, is less, you know? So if you just, if all you're doing is generating more tournaments more Formula One races, more football matches, more tournaments that, that, you know, the golfers will appear at. We all know, anyone who knows anything about golf, and, and obviously in that centre um, group, that we know the season narrative. We know it's major championships, and we know it's, you know, we know how it works. And there are a few, a handful of others. And essentially, you know, what's happened is that the players have dictated to a large extent, they followed the money and, and they are playing for two. There are two levers that will get Rory McIlroy out of bed. One is money and the other is history. And he wants to accumulate major championships. So he's got to win one of those four and he wants to make a shed load of money. So he's going to turn out at, you know, in various places around the world. And, and he wants to live in Florida and play the, the PGA tour much to 
Keith Pelly's irritation. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, you know, and he has an enormous amount of power because then he knows that. And that's what, you know, the, 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 the lesson of golf going back to Arnold Palmer, even back to Walter Hagen, is that the players are enormously influential in terms of making or breaking events. And they, and they exert that um, power very ruthlessly. Um, and they are picking and choosing their own schedules. So, you know, the, the, it's, it's start, you know, that the, the, the real tour is essentially what those, what the top 10 play. That's the global tour. That's, that's where the heat is. And that's not driven by an event holder unless they come in with a shed load you know, of money. <laughs> a shed load of money. And that's the you know, one of the issues we've got at the end of the season, obviously. You've got this sort of FedEx thing, you've got people with ten million pound putts and which feels, you know, <laughs> for lots of reasons, <laughs> completely against the Zeitgeist. You know, if you wanna uh, I just did a, a going a bit off tangent, is that if you're looking at the image of golf from the outside, which is your very first question the most famous golfer in the world is Donald Trump, uh-huh. you know? And so golf becomes, well, no, he is, his presidency is about golf. He is to lots of people, what golf looks and sounds and feels like it's, you know, that's, that's <laughs> an unpalatable truth, yeah. but it's, it's something that, that is inescapable because, that's how you know that's that's still the image and we talk about you know or will rory come in and be the new tiger or will brooks be the you know or will dustin emerge as this thing and you sort of think all of that is just so marginal yeah. in the scheme of things um actually it's still seen as a sort of rich white affluent game and of course trump's not the first president to play golf but that most of them have been golfers including obama and clinton and george w and all the rest of them but um, certainly if your stance on golf is that it is for rich white people and is exclusionary and a waste of resources, um, you could certainly, it certainly hasn't hurt in making that case, has it? Uh, which golf's done very little to come. Because of course the reality of golf, Rich, and this is the frustration for people in the game, the reality of golf is that whilst there is a segment of the game that is like that, it's not the bulk of golf or golfers. I play golf predominantly with farmers and plumbers and carpenters. Builders and electricians. <laughs> oh, of course. You know, that's the truth. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's uh, we all know that. And sometimes, you know, you sort of sit, you, know, you, you sort of feel that golf is misrepre- misrepresented, and and it's really lazy to you know, car, you know, just to to make those links. But those are the sorts of things that. I think a lot of people who don't ever think about golf until they, you know, interact with it in that way. And Rory winning fifteen million in one week, does that help or hinder? I think it hinders. And in fact, feels to me. I mean, the, the PGA Tour's got a problem with that FedEx Cup in that it's the money's just not interesting. They've got to a point where money's no longer going to cut it. In, in in terms of, and Rory said it himself two years ago and got in a lot of trouble. You know, a ten million dollar punt. Either way, in all honesty, it doesn't matter to him. That's the truth of it. He's playing to win. So it's a, it's a kind of an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Because in a game of individuals, money in golf, I feel like, is different to in other sports. Uh, highly paid football players and whatnot are part of a team and contribute and they trade them and they do all that sort of stuff. Whereas the money in golf is, it very much just goes to a person based on 
their performance, but it's kind of got to a point where, a bit like violence on TV, I think we're desensitised to it, aren't we, as fans? Yeah. Are excited about yeah. Troy winning 15? Cause no, of course not. I mean, I, I think million, there's a it, was sort of, a, it was another 15 million. Maybe that's the problem. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's two big problems there, what, well, you know, that are hanging around, not just in I mean, golf. Is golf has always had a problem with money because that they play on a money list, and it's it's how it, what the, you know they determine well, merit. FedEx Cup points, and that hasn't been an accident. One of the yeah, yeah. one of the deliveries of the FedEx Cup has been to put shift the money away, shift the the ranking system away from money into these points. So if you, you can look up the money list still every year, and I talked about this to someone the other day, you go down that list and see blokes who've made two and three million bucks, and you wonder how you didn't hear of them all year. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> three million bucks on the court. Sorry, I interrupted you there, but there's been a very deliberate shift in all golf tours to move it away from actual dollars, and I wonder whether that's yeah, that's been. A and that that hasn't. It's no coincidence that happened. That started to happen around the banking crisis because, you know, golf and the banking crisis, which we're still, mm. you know, I think a lot of the a lot of, of today's politics around the world is dictated by that, you know, just that that moment and golf was caught in the, the, the sort of headlights there because it was tied into it, uh, you know, to, a, to an extent. But what I would say is that, you know, even Formula One finds a way of taking people's minds off money, you know, that, you know, you couldn't get a more capitalist sort of sport. Golf has always been about money, how much they earn. And that's, that's the sort of central part of the narrative. And yes, we don't care, you know, why, uh, who cares whether people like McElroy or, or, you know, tiger win all of this money it's it's really boring um so you've got this that's a problem and that's the you know that the the the, the uh that plays to the image of the game and that's a that's a problem then you've got this other problem of of which is going to hit golf like a uh, a whirlwind which is the sort of um extinction rebellion um climate uh, movement and that we've just seen over the last week you know demonstration around the youth olympics every sports governing body we we're in with formula one a couple of weeks ago they are you know it's gone from being a tick box exercise you know you, i remember talking to people around sydney olympics about oh it's going to be a green olympics it's like a sort of you know look we're, we're recycling our you know um whatever in the in the stadium now they're really going after them and sport is in the in the um crosshairs and that's formula one football champions league the global footprint of these major sports events is really under pressure and golf is going to be you know uh, a big part of that Land. i don't know what i don't I have no idea what the answer is going to be but it's Land that's something water. they're exactly. very worried about yeah it pushes a couple of buttons doesn't it and and right for so that's going to be an interesting sort of one what about Women's goals. Thinking while you were talking there, Richard, we don't talk much about women's sport as a separate thing, and I'm trying to think about how much of that we see in the unofficial partner podcast. I'll get your thoughts on that, women's sport and where it sits and perhaps opportunities. Would we be more interested? I think I would. If the women played for $15 million, I would find that compelling, but I don't for the men. Is that interesting or is it just me Um, searching for something? I think if you were – you you know, I think the reason you're saying—I don't know why you're saying—but the reason you're saying that is because you know that that would be a life-changing amount of money for someone who won 15 million quid. You know, um, because the it's not the gender; the, it's the position of the not, playing. For it's the not, 
you know, it's not normal in that sense. I think that the, again, for years, it's, I think the women's sport thing is really interesting because at the you know, particularly over here in the UK, we're going through this moment where uh, we've had football and cricket particularly really breaking through as sort of mainstream sport, women's uh, cricket and women's football. And it's coming from a sort of low base from a viewing perspective, but certainly the women's world cup, the, the football world cup last year was a, was a major significant moment because it's viewing figures were, you know, every bit as good as, as men's and if not better in, in a lot of cases. So the argument we always had again for, for 20 years or more was why are women's sports so undervalued? Why are they not getting as much money? Why are they? And they're always the argument people who, you know, sort of would say, Oh, well, they're not getting the viewing figures. They're not getting, you know, it's not as popular. And so therefore they shouldn't get as much money. Actually, what we're finding is that you put it, you give it a platform and people are interested in it. And, um, it again, goes back to the old question of, are uh, sports popular because they're on telly or are they on telly because they're popular uh, and, chicken and egg if you put yeah if you put women's sport give it the profile talk about it put it in the the day-to-day media narrative of course it was going to build an audience you know and i've always said i mean i remember going you know i remember working on a on a page talking covering women's golf 10 years ago and it i loved it because it felt like okay well i'm the game makes sense to me now again, you know, it's like a, to your point about it's a different game. Lots of people watching to lots of people watch golf, play golf. If that's the case, I would suggest watching women's golf because it's a much more, you know, it's a game that you, you know, you can really sort of relate to in a way that I, I've sort of, you know, who can relate to 400 yard, 500 yard drives. And, you know, it's just like wedges into par fives and all that it's that's a, a sort of spectacle but actually the women's game is much more um relatable yeah, the, 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 the bombing the ball game i often liken it to sort of mcdonald's it's, it's it tastes good but it's not ultimately you can't live on it golf's got a real reckoning coming in men's golf with that whole distance debate and that that relatable thing you just use the word relatable i've been in a two-day twitter storm which i my own fault i started it by asking a question which is obviously the most stupid thing you could ever do Mm. Uh, about whether golf should be whether whether it's good for professional golf to be relatable. I think it is. I think it's one of the keys to the game. Now, there's a there's a band in there of relatability. You don't want to watch. You don't want it to be so relatable that you're watching blokes chunk it and thin it <laughs> around the greens, yeah. or or women obviously not. But I do think it passes a point when co-host here on the good good podcast, Adrian Lowe, was at the British Open a couple of years ago. The Open, as we should be calling it, standing on the range watching Rory hit drives. He said it was just amazing. But you couldn't see the first 100 metres of the flight. You got into the habit of looking, you know, 120 metres forward up in the window where you're expecting it to go through because you couldn't see the ball off the club face. And that's just not golf for most people. So it's impressive, but I think golf loses something when it stops being relatable between the top levels of the game. Lots of people disagree with him, might I say, on Twitter. So if you're listening and you've been in that Twitter discussion, I accept your point of view. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just don't agree with it. I think there's something in there that's maybe needs to be teased out a bit more to uh, to find it. Let's uh, let's move on to a couple of other things, Richard. There was a really interesting piece which started, funnily enough, and why do I go on Twitter, Richard? It's just, <laughs> it's, it's never well, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> Greg Baum, who's a, got a tennis writer down here, or sports writer down here, I 
not actually previously heard. I'm not a follower of any other sports golf is my thing. But Mike Clayton tweeted a piece that he'd written in The Age about Nadal's management and sponsor offered them an interview with Nadal on the basis of the questions would be submitted first before the interview, that the interview would only be 12 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever it was, one-on-one, and that within it, the sponsor would need to be mentioned. Is that healthy? Is that good? I thought it wasn't. Lots of people said, oh, people know that that's the case. Do you reckon they do? Is that healthy? Is, have we shifted well, I mean, so I far think... in media that that's just okay? They knock back the interview, by the way, to their credit. I read the piece. It was interesting. I I felt it was interesting that people were surprised about it. I mean, it, you know, we talked about the beginning about things that chunter on for for years and then suddenly they become newsworthy. This has been going on for a very long time and um, which doesn't make it right. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of, there's two bits to it. One is on the reader side. I think that people are more savvy than we give them credit for. They, they can see something being flogged and, you know, it's a really clunky, really ham fisted way of, of oh, flogging it's a champagne or you'd watch be looking or whatever. To change yeah. if that was their strategy, wouldn't it? Yeah, That's I mean it's so, you know, awful. it's embarrassing, yeah. you know, and um so it's it's that's very old school. You know, we were living in a world of, of you know influencers flogging us stuff, you know, and not sort of you know the the transparency question of of um across Instagram on YouTube and, and the rest you know our kids growing up, they have to navigate this world and they are very, very adept at, at spotting, you know, I've only got to watch a, a film with uh, a 14-year-old and they're very good at spotting, you know, product placement, you know. So it's not like a sort of, there isn't a great huge issue there other than if you are still employing PR agencies who, who start to, try and and do this sort of stuff you've got the wrong pr agency frankly because they you know it's absolutely shit way of doing things and it doesn't help you know it makes your client look stupid and the rest of it so why would you do it and secondly there's a sort of bit where um the endorsement question um is really interesting now in the you know when you when we sort of know so much about Endorsements used to be, there used to be a thing in, in, in Hollywood actors in the sort of 50s and 60s and 70s, before obviously before the internet and the rest of it, they used to go to Japan and, and do endorsement deals for massive amounts of money. And, no one, and safe in the knowledge that no one would ever see the advert because it would only be on Japanese television and they wouldn't, you know, no one would give a toss. So people like Clint Eastwood and Charlton Heston would go off and flog whiskey. And then they would go back and no one would see it. And now obviously that world doesn't exist anymore and we are you know in a world where and they used to call that a japanda the reason i mentioned it so a japanda was when someone would go off to japan normally because there was you know a thriving marketing economy and do their sort of uh, flog their stuff flog their wares get get paid and then just come home that now we're in a world where we know so much about actors and sports people and personalities that it's so much you know so much is being sold and now we are so much savvier to it so if again if there's a sort of someone like Federer you know the thing was about Nadal and Federer but it could be any 
any sport the the manipulation of the media the media is not making any money you know that it's all part of that trend of of advertising's gone away if you can get uh, that's that means that the sort of um the people with access if you're selling access to stars then you're going to try and squeeze that pinch point but it just doesn't work i mean you know it's 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 so crass Mm. <laughs> it's just really you know but it's happened for you know happens for a long time and I, I i'm sure i always think that people must must know about it you know they must assume that it's oh everything's paid for i'm not quite so sure about that so but anyway you you know, and i don't know about the 14 year olds because i don't know any you might be might be right about that in a fragmented media landscape uh institutions like the age and this you know the australian and the telegraph and mainstream media your daily mail and express are they more vulnerable to that i worked at the daily telegraph jesus 30 years ago <laughs> as it turns out in the daily mirror as a journo certainly that would never have happened that i can recall you wouldn't be told to go and write a story and by the way submit your questions first and i can't recall that happening that i suspect that's changed because the the paper's under more pressure isn't it that they might be more vulnerable I certainly think that there's um, – so you've moved from – if you go back, a champagne company would buy an advert in the paper. Um, now they want to be in the editorial, and, and that's the same for a watch company, a bank, and that's not just in sport. That's across the whole yeah. paper. So they're looking at ways of, of becoming the story – in a way that they wouldn't have dared to do before. And you're right, the economics of news is such that they're allowed to do it. And, you know, it's dressed up as native advertising or branded content or sponsorship. These are all ways in which we are becoming cynical about advertising and therefore they want to get into the story itself. And that's why, you know, uh, Tiger Woods wears a Nike cap. You know, it's, it's, they don't advertise on the in the in the breaks anymore because no one's watching. Well, I say no one, but fewer of us are watching ad breaks. So they need to get into actually what's happening. Now that's the, that's true of Strictly Come Dancing or of X Factor, as it is um, a golf tournament or a tennis tournament. But isn't the, to me this has always been the interesting conundrum: is that once you've started to sell the editorial space. It's no longer of any value. It might as well just be advertising space. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, the advertiser wants to be in it because it's seen as valuable because you can't get in there unless there's something worthwhile about it. But once you've bought your way in there, it's lost all of the appeal that attracted it to you in the first place. So it's a, it, it's a game that ends up nowhere for both parties ultimately. Uh, yeah. The- no, I agree. I mean, and if you look at BuzzFeed, for example, which is, you know, has, has sort of ebbed and flowed over the last couple of years, but it's obviously very fashionable it was very fashionable. It's becoming less so. That's, that's a, you could argue that's an advertising agency with an editorial team attached. You know, it's, they're selling advertising. Their stories are, 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 you know, based on what the advertiser wants with a, you know, but with an editor, with other editorial as well. So, um, is it only us journos that care? seems to be. Uh, uh, I think if it's, if it's any good, you know, if it's <laughs> if it's crap, <laughs> then everyone looks rubbish. You know, if if a bank said we uh, if you're writing a feature about 
um, banking, then bank, you're going to go and talk to a bank and they will know lots about it. As long as it's not a news story, as long as, if it's a feature, then the line between someone being quoted in a piece and someone driving that story because they think it's interesting for the reader is, you know, it's very thin. And there is a, there is a, a valid reason for going to talk to a bank or a whatever, if, if that's their subject area. If it's just a, you know, a straight, cheap plug and it's just about eyeballs, then, you know, it looks tawdry. And, and uh, as you say, I would just get a different, different agency. There were people doing it much better. What sort of editorial crime must I have committed, Richard, to be sent to do a feature interview on a banker? How badly must I heard as a cadet to pick that uh, together that in my direction? I guess that relationship between – because it is a three-way relationship and it's often forgotten, I feel, by publishers and by advertisers. They think it's a two-way relationship. We've got a market to sell. You've got something you want to buy. But the reader is perhaps – or the consumer is a much more important part of what I guess is becoming a more sophisticated relationship between all three. Is that a – do you think it's changed? Um, yeah, I think. Well, I think that if the reader is more savvy, then they're just going to have to, you know. There is an argument actually for going back to being more obviously advertising, because then there is an honesty there. You know, you say, right, okay, I have, I've got, um, I'm flogging Coca Cola, and I will, you know, here I am. And uh, you know what we stand for. And this is the value add is that one of their journals. Yeah, and we're paying, we're paying for your attention. attention. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no one's going to, everyone was happy with that arrangement. The problem we've had with, with um, the the, the way that that sort of relationship has has, has sort of um, worked out is now, this is particularly true of sports fans, actually. So sports fans would watch, the um the event and on telly on on uh commercial television and the adverts paid for the content you know the advert they were so simple wasn't it and we and we got it we got it for free now now we're paying twice we're paying for our tip with our attention but we're also paying for subscriptions Mm -hmm. so um and no one has you know how does that work? Well, that's a that's a sort of trick that's, uh, and now we're paying for a third time with our data. So as soon as we click on something or we sign anything up, sign up to something, then we're going to get chased around the internet by brands who want to flog us stuff that you know, and and so having paid once with our attention, twice with a subscription, now we're paying third with our personal data, and that's you know third again part. we're getting. That third part is still quite clumsy at the moment, isn't it? But there's a very insidious potential to that whole data thing, which is quite frightening. If yeah, you, yeah. If, if, you're, if you're naturally inclined to look at the world as bleak, that's a potentially quite terrifying prospect what might happen. In yeah, that or it's or it's or it could be, you know, there is an upside. I, I agree with you. There's always the, the privacy and um, the issue. And, but there's also a, it could make things really good. I mean, I remember doing, talking to, as in, they could give you stuff that you actually want. The problem now is that it's 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 not sophisticated enough. So you know, you, a backpack you and just, they advertise backpacks to you for three weeks. Exactly, already bought you the know, bloody backpack. You just bought a fridge. Do you want to buy a fridge? You know, you think, it, and that's and those sort of slippers that follow you around the internet. Um, 
but it's like a uh, I think what will happen is that that you know as that becomes more sophisticated actually there is a lot of benefit to be had for giving us what we want you know particularly when we're looking at uh, you know if we're looking at content so for example if you are a golf fan and you like watching clips of golf then there are ways of making you know serving you up with stuff that you are going to find enjoyable of course you're going to have to take control of your own life and your attention because you could spend your whole bloody day watching golf clips (laughs) but that's how you know that's that's part of being uh a grown-up today is is working out your relationship with your phone and your technology, isn't it? Let's bring it back to golf just quickly to finish up. There was one thing I particularly yeah. wanted to ask you about. Uh, very early in the Unofficial Partner podcast uh, rotation was a panel discussion between yourself and two of the other guys who work at Unofficial Partner, one of whom was quite young. And that's not their fault, obviously, but doesn't make it okay. But there was some really interesting stuff about Tiger and Nike and that entire relationship early on. And the, the younger chap whose name escapes me, and I apologise, they were two. Owen Connolly. Oh, a particularly interesting chap, and, and as was the other guy. It was a fantastic discussion. But I think it was him that suggested Tiger and Serena Williams might be the last of the truly big global stars simply because of the changing nature of media, where you used to have this big canon of international television in the 90s and early 2000s. That no longer exists and i thought that was interesting as was a lot of the other stuff about the the tiger and nike relationship and your observation that in fact tiger got a lot of credit for driving up um the the prices television would pay for golf when in fact there was a market that was already driving prices up so perhaps we've misplaced it tell us a little bit about that sort of panel discussion and a couple of those things i thought that was really interesting and that was probably my favorite episode of the show to be honest with you so far um that is yeah, so it was earlier. It was Owen Connolly, who's actually the editor of Sports Pro, which is a, a very good magazine, and Tim Crow, who is a um, sports marketing sort of expert consultant. And yeah, we were talking about Tiger, and it's actually about the sort of second coming of, of Tiger Woods, and he just won the Masters, and what we were thinking about, you know, what does that mean? Um, and it's it's... It's really interesting, actually, looking back over the year of because one of the one of the questions was when. So when Tiger obviously had his moment and, you know, the 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 marriage, the stories, the scandal. And obviously, you know, he then um, was deserted. You know, people sort of, you know, you had uh, Accenture and and. Gillette and various other people sort of scarpering as, as quickly as they could. Nike's stayed with him. Um, and one of the questions was, well, what's going to happen when he now, you know, now he's back. He just won the Masters. And, and actually, we all love a story. So it was the up and down. You know, stories need a, need a sort of, if it's just constant, like Roger Federer is, is um, just a constant success, which some people can find a bit dull. You know, it's just like actually, it's quite interesting to have someone who's, who's sort of relentlessly um, yeah. successful and winning. Yes, it's annoying, but it's interesting. Sort yeah. Of. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, it's nice to go up and down. So there's a sort of there's an issue there about well, I think Owen was making the point about these equating the sort of big television stars that have been created by television 
And can you create big global stars on digital channels? And we don't know the answer to that because it all goes back to there's a brilliant, uh, you know, in terms of just how we all live in our own filter bubble and we're going to all have our own stars and there are lots of people that we look up to. But if we're not watching the same event um, at the same time and the sports events have become very niche and are servicing sort of small audiences, which are very sort of uh, at, the, at the bottom of the funnel, if you like, in terms of you're, 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 you're watching them on your own phone or if you're watching them on, on your telly, but it's stream, you're not, these aren't major cultural moments anymore. Then how do you build these global globally famous sports stars mm. um and that, that you know it'd be interesting and, and there's a sort of a parallel there with there's a debate in advertising actually about whether or not uh people always talk about the death of television which is silly but actually what they're saying is that if you are um engaging with sport at you know your your own interests and your own niches, um, it's quite difficult to look out and see the relevance of a Tiger Woods, you know, who who transcend, you know, famously transcended uh, golf and was this big. My mum knew who Tiger Woods was. My mum's you know, still so it's like a, a very famous um, person. And there's a brilliant quote from by by um, when Elvis died, and I really re- recommend people looking this up there's a there's lester bangs who was a sort of music journalist of the 70s and he's the guy that is in um almost famous there's a film with uh, goldie horn's daughter i can't remember kate hudson and lester bangs was this brilliant music journalist and then he made a statement that when El- he wrote this piece which is a stunning piece on the day that elvis died he said we will know you know elvis is dead we won't have another Elvis because, but we will all have our own Elvises. You know, we'll have our own versions of it, but there won't be one that talks to the whole world in the same way. And that, that what we're seeing is, is, you know, little stars are getting smaller yeah. and they're not, they haven't got that global impact. So I think there's something in it. Yeah. Who knows? But uh, certainly, you know, as we're all now, consuming things in the sort of clip economy on our phones on twitter on instagram it's difficult to feel that sense of everyone is watching this at the same time well to to bring it back to golf to closing it's kind of where we started wasn't it we know that there's probably five big events each year that even the non-golfers will watch the masters is unquestionably one probably less so for the other three majors and the Ryder cup um Go beyond golf, yeah. don't they? Everybody watches at least some of the Masters and the Ryder Cup, almost. I mean, obviously, that's not 100%. Well, I, I would question the Masters. I mean, I think that, oh, you really? know. Okay. Well, I think. I'm less in well, with it every year. From, a, from a UK perspective, golf has all but disappeared from terrestrial television. You know, the Open, the Masters, they're all on pay television now. And if you, and we, I think we talked about this before when we had, you know, on the. Um, with Clates, but actually the BBC has, has dropped golf almost entirely. Um, and it's just, it, it's disappeared. So unless you are a 
golf fan, you're not going to even, you know, you're not going to sort of uh, engage with it at all. So the Ryder Cup is probably the only time that it that it surfaces. Um, it's got a tribal so line, the Masters too, sort it? of you don't have to be a golf follower to know that you're either European or American. So you know which team you've got to back, <laughs> and you know who you need to be cheering for. So that element really helps uh, the Ryder Cup and its success, Richard. I could t- I could honestly talk to you for five or six hours. I reckon we wouldn't scratch the surface, and we've barely scratched the surface with this. We've hardly talked about golf, but hopefully the listeners have enjoyed it. I always do. I feel like it's an insight into the, the little peek behind the curtain of what goes on around the place, but it's always fabulous to talk to you, and it has been again today. Thanks for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. Okay, mate. I really enjoyed it. Well, if you made it this far, I'm assuming that you, like me, find the whole sport as business topic an intriguing one, and Richard Gillis, a master at helping to pick it apart. You can follow Richard on Twitter at, at RichardGillis1, that's capital R-I-C-H-A-R-D, capital G-I-L-L-I-S for Sam, numeral one. I'll link to that in the show notes below as well. He always posts the latest episode of his podcast to that Twitter feed if you're inclined to check it out. That's it for episode 16. Don't forget to get in touch by email, rod at talkinggolf.com, just the one G in Talking Golf, or on Twitter at, at rod underscore Mori. We'll be back to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.